Father, we thank you for <clears throat> your word which you have delivered through the Apostle Paul. We had asked that you would provide for us wisdom and insight, and that beyond our years. And we thank you for your care over us, your care over the church, how you promised to build us up and, and take care of us until that day we can see you face to face. And we long for that day, Lord, especially in the times which we live. And for those who are calling good evil and evil good, we pray that they would be exposed. But in the meantime, Lord, we ask that you would um, comfort us through your word and show us how Paul balances his letter of harshness with the believers that he holds so dear. In Jesus' name, amen. So <clears throat> he delivers this final instruction to the church. And after writing this letter, you'd expect him to end it in a particular way, maybe some type of encouragement or instruction of some kind. And I think he does that. But I want you to take out your Bible. If you don't have a Bible or if you uh, use your phone, something like that, that would be fine. But I'd like you to turn to Galatians. <clears throat> and I'm going to walk you through everything that Paul does to the church. Now, normally when you come to the church, you want to hear a word of encouragement. You want to hear a word of instruction. Or if a letter is written, you want to simply hear, well, this is good and that's done well and that type of thing. Well, Paul doesn't do this as I've started out the letter uh, back in chapter 1. I, I let you know that it was a, a pretty tough letter uh, to receive. But first, Paul uses shame. He shames the Galatians in chapter 1, verse 6. Take a look at it here. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. I'm astonished at your behavior, is what he's saying. So he uses shame. Secondly, he brought down a curse, not only once, but twice on one or more of the teachers in the body. This is what he says in Galatians 1.8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. In other words, remember I told you, that's like saying, I wish he would go to hell. He goes on to say in verse 9, as we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. So with emphasis, first uses shame. Then he brings down a curse on someone or a couple of individuals who are teaching a different gospel. Then he accuses them, and it's implicit in the text here, he accuses them of being men-pleasers. In Galatians 1.10, he says, Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God, or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, there was some man-pleasing going on there. People just wanted to get along. It's implied that the members of the church were following certain leaders, and because of the truth, they didn't want to receive any kind of persecution or bring an offense. They just said, okay, well, can't we just all get along? Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Can't we just compromise on some of these issues? And, of course, he accuses them. Again, it's implied of being men-pleasers. Then, fourth, he called one or more of the teachers or the leaders nothing. They're unimportant. They're irrelevant. Isn't this a nice letter going to the church? In Galatians chapter 2, verse 6, he says, As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearances. Those men added nothing to my message. Wow, he's really batting a thousand here, isn't he? Then he goes on and he calls the Galatian church, those people who he's writing the letter to, he calls them fools. Not just once, but twice. Galatians 3.1. 
says, you foolish Galatians. Galatians 3.3. 3. Are you so foolish? And, and so if he's trying to win them over, it seems a strange way for him to do it. Sixth, he accuses those who were trying to follow the law as not even being believers. Galatians 5.4, he says, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. In other words, you're not even under grace. You are not a believer. So the accusations continue. Number seven, he accuses them of letting themselves be fooled or deceived. Galatians 5.7. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? In other words, how is it that you were so duped? You're so foolish. You're so gullible in what you were believing from these teachers. The eighth thing he says He wished that those leaders who taught circumcision would emasculate themselves. Galatians 5.12, as for those agitators, I wish that they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Remember, that's slip with a Ginsu knife and do some real damage. Number nine, Paul even delivers a threat. Galatians 5.10, he says, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Now, Paul had apostolic authority. Remember how Peter was able uh, to bring in Ananias and Sapphira because they were disobedient. The Lord took them right in front of Peter. Well, something like that could have taken place under Paul. We don't know. Or we don't know if the payment that he's referring to is later in the judgment or in the wrath of God. We have no idea what he's referring to here, but he's saying, you're going to pay for this. And then number 10, he implies that they were deceived. Because in Galatians 6, 7, he says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. So he's not being very friendly to the church in Galatia. He's actually rebuking them. It's the strongest admonition that can be delivered. So how does he respond at the end of the book here in chapter 6? What does he do? Well, with all of these errors that are being committed, he directs them into how they are helping how they are helping others. He wants them to get their focus directed properly, not on this false teaching, but doing what they know to do. And first he deals with helping the sinner, then helping those who are burdened, then helping the pastor, and then helping everyone else. So he says, look, this is what you guys need to be focused on. Get away from this other gospel. And the gospel that we preach is the one where Christ died for our sins and that we are able, by the love he gave to us, to assist others. And this is how he picks it up. And he says, brothers, in verse 1 of chapter 6, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And this word caught by a sin really means to be overtaken. Uh, They may be running away from the sin, but they're not running fast enough, and the sin is much more rapid, and it overtakes the individual. And you try to think of, well, what could that possibly be? Most sins we get involved in, we just dive headlong into. Well, I I thought of a scenario, for instance, in life. A child who is abused later starts to use drugs to escape and falls into bad relationships, trying to do what is right, but falls on hard times, maybe even becomes homeless. They seek an escape, but they are unable on their own to get out of the rut 
that they are in, never able to develop the skills to fight off the temptations. They are weak in the flesh. And so they're trying, 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 but they just can't seem to make it. And this is what it's referring to here. Somebody who seems to just have a string of, quote-unquote, bad luck or bad incidents happen to them. And he's telling us here in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, the one who is caught, who is overtaken by a particular sin or a set of sins, we're to reach in and we're to help them. Now, there's several criteria for the individual who would be considered spiritual. Those who are spiritual should restore him gently. And you might think to yourself, well, who is spiritual? As opposed to who is unspiritual. Now, if you remember in the weeks past, we went through uh, several of the disqualifiers for heaven in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, Ephesians 5, 4, 2 Corinthians 12, 20, and Colossians 3, 5. I'm just going to read through those. Now, some of them overlap, but I'm going to read through what would disqualify somebody from being a spiritual leader as opposed to what would qualify them. For instance, if you're going to have somebody help someone else, you want them to be capable of doing so and not exhibiting the wrong tendencies. So these wrong tendencies would be sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, drug use, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, a thief, a greedy, a slanderer, a swindler, obscene in their language, they talk foolishly, they have coarse jesting, they quarrel, have outbursts of anger, they slander, gossip, they are arrogant, and they're disorderly, and they have lust and evil desire. All those things, you don't want to take somebody like that and say, here, I want you to restore this individual over on this side. That would be foolish to grab somebody like that and say, go help this individual. Because you're maybe just looking for somebody. There's nobody there to do it. And you never want to assign that particular task to an individual that displays all of these characteristics. Now, what are some of the several characteristics that could enable someone to be qualified? Well, meek, gentle, calm, not given to anger or quarreling, merciful, trustworthy, faithful, loving, non-judgmental, sacrificial with their time, an encourager. He or she should never have sinned since becoming a believer, and they should have seen Jesus face to face. And in addition to that, they glow because they're so holy. You see what I'm saying? I'm using absurdity here. How do you determine who is spiritual? Everyone is a sinner. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. So who is more worthy than someone else? All I can say is there are some who do the Christian walk a little bit better than others. And they are humble in their attitudes and they recognize their fallenness and they are quick Uh, to say when they are in error. But there has to be some type of criteria that you would have to say that, well, this individual is spiritual. They're the ones that are supposed to help someone else. And I've categorized these things. Uh, I have three of them, acumen, actions, and affection. The acumen is having insight or judgment or wisdom or expertise. And that comes through longevity that comes through just patiently walking with the Lord. So the acumen, the second is the action. They are known by what they do. For instance, they serve the body, they pray, they attend church. Maybe it's a teacher or an encourager inside the body. But in other words, they're just known. They're known to follow Christ. 
and there's really no debate that that's in fact what they uh, do as they follow Christ. They are also able to keep a confidence or keep a secret. Could you imagine somebody helping someone else come out of a sin and they come to somebody else in the body and say, guess what I just learned? And they start talking about the individual and their failings. Proverbs 11.13 says, A gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy man keeps a secret. In Proverbs 25.9, If you argue your case with a neighbor, do not betray another man's confidence. So they have experience, they have longevity, and they're humble in their attitude, and they have a proven track record. And the third thing would be affection. They have affection for the body of Christ. They, they love those who are loved by Christ. And they give themselves sacrificially to that. A good scripture that spells this out is Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being found in appearance of a man He humbled himself and God exalted him to the highest place after that. So that's what the attitude of somebody who is spiritual is supposed to be. They consider others better than themselves. They place their cares, needs, wants, and desires ahead of their own. But there's a problem with this. If if you want to go in and you want to help restore somebody who has been overtaken into sin... I cannot tell you over 30 years of ministry how many times I have either given or I have seen somebody give counsel, biblical, solid counsel. It is dished out and they just don't apply it or they don't receive it. And then they fall right back into the same error. They refuse. It's like they... They just stick both feet on the ground and they fold their arms at the elbows and they just say, that's it, I'm not moving forward whatsoever. People are going to do what they want to do. Now, it can be because they have become offended or they don't like the person giving the counsel or they don't want to listen or they could be self-deceived or there's just an outright refusal to conform to the spiritual counsel. They disagree maybe with the course of action. I've heard that before. Well, I don't agree. Okay, well, you're not disagreeing with me or the person who gives the counsel. You're disagreeing with the Scripture, and you want to be able to follow the Scripture. For instance, counsel that has been given in the past. Don't move in together. Don't sleep together. Don't marry an unbeliever. Don't make a rash decision. Choose to forgive. Seek counsel from others who are spiritual. Consider those around you and the impact it will have. Does your choice violate scripture? I mean, these are all simple things. And like, does your choice violate scripture? I don't care. Well, don't marry an unbeliever. Well, but he loves me. And all of these, and they don't want to take the counsel. All of these are scriptural. I mean, they're just solid if you follow them. But it causes us pain to follow what scripture has to say. So the person who is caught in a sin, they can only get out of that sin if they're willing to receive and apply the counsel. They're willing to apprehend it. If they're not willing to apprehend it, then they go their own way. Look at the recidivism rate in the prisons uh, throughout the United States and even the world. People can be in there. And they get out, and they get in, and they get out, and it's a revolving door because they just keep on refusing the counsel, and they just keep on going forward to their own destruction. 
And so <clears throat> what do you do at that point? Do you just throw your hands and give up and say, that's it, I'm done with you, forget it, we're not talking anymore? No, you don't do that. The person who is following Christ just says, okay, well, let's try it again. And you just keep on going. When are they going to get it right? Well, if they're believers, they're not until they see Christ. They're going to improve somewhat, and hopefully they will change their ways, you know, maybe 90%, but they're never going to get it perfect, and we have to keep that in mind. And and if the person who's given counsel expects them to be perfect, then they are self-deceived, and they're not a good person to initiate the restoration process. And so we have to have all kinds of grace when it comes to this, but we also want to make sure that we are open to the counsel of the word, that we are not simply rejecting it. And it hasn't been so long ago that I gave counsel, and it was completely rejected. It was not followed whatsoever. And that is the case, I think, of most of us. Now, how are we to restore? It says, gently and mildly. And so if you take an individual who needs some counsel who needs some restoration you don't berate them you don't beat them over the head you don't take scripture or a bible and just smack them upside the the ear you don't do that you you are gentle with them you are mild with them we're told uh, not to beat the sheep in scripture as leaders in the church and that's a paraphrase but some 24 times in the book of first john the word love is used if you want to find out anything you need to know about love, you can go to 1 John. And of course, John was called the apostle of love. But he gives a warning in this verse, the end of verse 1. But watch yourself or you also may be tempted. I know of one pastor years ago. He was an ex-drug addict. And this ex-drug addict, as a pastor, he had somebody in the congregation come up and give him their drugs, some heroin. Well, he didn't dispose of the heroin. He started using the heroin. And I remember driving by and seeing him once on the street. And he had lost probably 60, 70 pounds. I just knew something wasn't right. And sure enough, he had started to use heroin again. And and he did eventually turn around, which was good. And he he got back into ministry. and, And that's all good. But it destroyed his marriage. And it was just a terrible thing. And so if we seek to restore someone, we want to make sure that we are not going to fall into the same trap. Now, going on here... We have helping those who are burdened. First, we had the helping those who have sinned, who are caught in a sin, but then helping those who are burdened. He says in verse 2, carry each other's burden, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, the the cares of life, children uh, having abandoned you or you are alone, income is sparse or limited, you need help with the simplest of things, cleaning and grocery shopping, those people who are not able to follow through with the normal responsibilities of life, he tells us to get in there and assist, help them out. Well, they they need uh, a washing machine hose replaced, and they really can't do it themselves. Well, we should get in there, and we should help them. Or if they're in the hospital and their lawn needs mowing, well, you you go and mow the lawn for them. You, You do some type of good deed. Also, in verse 3, it says, If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And this is dealing with conceit of the individual. The individual says to themselves, I haven't fallen into those kinds of things. Why has this person done that? Well, they've made some bad choices which led to their predicament. And and if you have that kind of attitude, it's going to uh, hinder 
the efforts that you would go forward to help those carry others' burdens before. We, um, well, let me say it can be very difficult to do that. Now, I have some personal experience. One thing that we did was we'd take the youth group uh, to Yosemite, and we would go backpack from Tuolumne to Yosemite. And we would have some practice backpacking sessions. And we would load up the backpacks with, you know, 40 pounds or so. And a normal backpack usually have about 50 pounds you're carrying on your back. And you're going from an elevation of maybe 6,000 feet to about 10,000 feet. And it's grueling. It's hard. And that starts to take the toll getting right out of the gate. Because you usually have one day, it's kind of level, and then you start climbing. Well, uh, some people it take all day to do just a few miles. And then at the end of the day, they were kind of spent. But uh, there was one particular time we went, we took another youth leader, and he didn't really work out enough. And so he had to go and be rescued, where the pack was dropped, uh, the individual dropped their pack at the site, and then they would go rescue this individual and they would take their pack on, put their burden on so the person had no weight whatsoever to continue the climb and they'd have to be rescued. And that happened a couple of times on a particular trip. And I, I know of a couple of people that they were not able to carry their own burden or their own Lord load, I should say. And because of that, it became a burden to everyone else. So what we're supposed to do is make sure that we don't take too much on, that we are balanced in our perspective, in our walk, and that if there is a load that we're supposed to carry, and by the way, it says this particular thing, it's self-examination in verse 4. It says, each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. This is reference to a military backpack. If you're in the military, you know, the, the army uh, or the Marines, they would have a pack that they would carry, you know, bullets and vest in the front and the pack in the back and, all, and the gun that they would have to carry and the helmet and all the armaments. They could be up to 80 pounds that they would be carrying. And if you were in the military, you're required, it is expected that you're going to carry your own pack. And if somebody can't, if they're injured, well, that's different. But if somebody is capable, they're not supposed to say, well, I'm not carrying this pack. I'm not going to be part of this. And so Paul is telling us that we are to help those who are burdened, and we are also supposed to carry our own load whenever possible. Don't put our responsibility that the Lord gives us on somebody else's back. Now, you have to ask yourself the question, well, what burden has the Lord given to me? And you would all say the same thing. What burden has the Lord given to you? You have certain skills, abilities, and talents, and God expects you to carry your load, just as he would expect me to carry my load, in the pursuit of holiness and being a disciple. And if you say, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to volunteer. I'm not going to be a part of that. There's a story I've told several times when I was going to college and I was taking ornamental horticulture classes, there was this guy 
and he had like a fisherman's hat on and he was a little slow in his demeanor and in his actions and everyone was supposed to be taught how to do things concerning ornamental horticulture you actually had to get your hands dirty you had to build things you had to dig holes and put in irrigation and just do everything concerning that and this guy he would get all the book knowledge but he didn't want to do any of the work at all he would stand there like a supervisor and just watch and he would do well in the test but the practical application was not there he knew everything that was supposed to be done but he would not put his hands to the plow so to speak he would just stand there when everybody else was working and everybody who was working would turn to him and go what are you doing he goes oh you're doing fine just keep it up you know it's wonderful and so the the load isn't shared by everyone who has the responsibility and in christendom the same thing applies there are people who will just outright refuse to take on the burden that the lord has given them they won't do it now there's a lot to be said for taking some rest to relaxing a little bit i think everybody has to do it And you have to divvy up that time. You have to carve it out because otherwise you can just keep on going and keep on going and you can burn out. And there's a place for that. But for the most part, all of us are supposed to fulfill our responsibilities. And we want to ask ourselves the question, all of us, including me, are we given, are the, the burden that we've been given, are we carrying it or are we asking others to carry it? or not even asking them, just giving them the responsibility? Or do we just not want to take on anything at all? Do we avoid our Christian responsibility because we just want to relax? You know, I'm tired of working. I've heard that sometimes from Christian workers. They they get uh, offended. And by the way, as I talk about these things, I'm not doing this to, to bring on a guilt trip. Because when you actually serve the Lord the way he wants you to serve him, it's a blessing. I mean, it it turns around and you have this deep sense of fulfillment and joy, which cannot be replaced by anything else. And the Lord will turn to you one day if he hasn't already just bore witness in your spirit like, good job, well done, keep it up. But there are those who just want to avoid the responsibility and they don't want to be a burden to anybody. They don't want to help anybody. They just want to kind of get all the benefits and then walk on from there. And be assured God has given to each one of us a task or even multiple tasks to perform for the sake of the body and for the sake of those outside the body as well. And I pray and I hope that you know what yours is and that you are indeed carrying out that load. So it shouldn't be motivated by guilt, but it should be motivated by love and what Christ has done for us. Then there's helping the pastor. Now, I like this one, helping the pastor. It says in verse 6, anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Now, this is not referring to necessarily something that somebody learned and they're going back and they're telling the pastor and the pastor goes, oh, you know, that's really insightful. That's good. It, It can apply to that. But in this particular context, it's referring to cold, hard cash. There's really no other way to say it. And there's a couple other places in Scripture where it says this. Romans chapter 15, verse 25 through 29. 
It says there, and Paul also wrote this, Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles had shared in the Jews' spiritual blessing... They owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. And this would also refer to those in positions of leadership there. Then they would distribute the money as is necessary. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this fruit, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. Also, 1 Corinthians verses 9 or excuse me, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have the right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Uh, He goes on to say, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. So those who are entitled to the income can refuse it and say, no, just use this for whatever ministry purposes are uh, pressing at the time. He also uh, says this, Paul again in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, pastors do their work well, or who do their work well should be paid well and should be highly appreciated, especially those whose work or who work hard at both preaching and teaching for the scripture says never tie up the mouth of an ox when it is treading out the grain let him eat as he goes along and in another place those who work deserve their pay and so he's using the illustration of an ox who treads out the grain now we don't see that here uh, but if you go to some of the third world countries you will definitely see that and what they have is they have a pole and from the pole extends a rod of some sort and it can go out 10 15 feet or so and they hook that to the yoke on an ox and as the ox is walking around and so it goes in a circle and as the ox is walking around he's treading out the grain he's separating the grain from the husk that's on there every time he steps on it it separates it it breaks it and then you're able to take up the chaff and the and the stems and you're able to put that to the side and you can gather up the wheat. And he says, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading the corn. In other words, let the ox with its slobbery face get down in the grain that you're going to be eating and let him eat some of that grain as he's treading it out. Don't muzzle or prevent him from doing that. And that would be kind of cruel to do that. There's all this food around, but you've been muzzled and you can't partake of it. Imagine going to a restaurant and they walk you through the restaurant and they put a muzzle on you, say, sorry, you can't eat it. And you go through there, even though you paid to be inside the restaurant. And that's the idea that's being expressed here. And and you kind of get it. So that's what he's saying. First, help those who are burdened, or, or excuse me, help those who have fallen into sin and help those who are burdened and help those who are in ministry. And then he gives a final exhortation, helping all men and women. Verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in well-doing, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. So it's both the unbelievers 
and the believers. And he says, especially those who are in the household of faith. Can you imagine getting to heaven one day and you had the opportunity to help somebody and you refuse to do it here on earth and you get to heaven and they look at you and they go, you. I forgive you because you're in heaven. You don't have the fallen nature anymore, but you. And you get up there and go, I know. I'm glad you forgive me. You don't want to have to go through all of that, right? If you know somebody that needs some help, help them. Whether it's somebody assisting them to get out of sin, become spiritual so that you can be qualified to do that. Whether it is somebody who is carrying a burden, simple stuff, everyday stuff, help them out. Our whole job is to be an example like Christ. There's no greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. And and even for your enemy, you're supposed to help those who are out there. Lord forbid that we could or should become completely sequestered, that we cut ourselves off from all other individuals. And somebody ends up saying, well, it's not my calling. It's not my gift. I'm not supposed to do that. Even Paul told Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. He didn't say he was an evangelist. He said, do the work of an evangelist. And the model for Calvary Chapel is that the pastor, if toilets need cleaning, he cleans the toilets. If something needs painting, he paints it. Uh, And if somebody wants to come along and assist in that, well, great. And that's what we should do. And that should be the example of everybody in the body of Christ. Now, our lives... They, they can be so self-focused or other-focused that we choose not to be of an assistance to somebody who is in need. And the individual says to themselves, well, this works for me and I'm enjoying my comfort. Uh, it, it's quite the pleasing place to be that I don't have to interact with too many people. After all, you know how people are. And for those who have lives or dedicated their lives to selfish abandonment in the service of Christ, and for others, they should receive praise, and their examples uh, should be followed. And for those who have shunned the responsibility, they are missing out on the biggest blessing in life and the greatest rewards in heaven. Remember, we're all working for what's ahead. We're not seeking to get our reward here. We're waiting to get our reward from Christ who is in heaven, and he's the one that's going to deliver it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones. And we do two types of work. One type will be burned up. The other type will last. And that will be our reward in heaven. And Keith Green, I don't know if you know who he was, but he was a singer. He died tragically. But he would say uh, in his songs that hopefully I'm not working to get a crown. Well, yeah, I think that may be partially true in the attitude, but we're supposed to be doing everything for heaven. And if we get a crown as a reward for that, well, great. That's a a side event. And it's not maybe to be our main focus, but we're doing it for Christ because Christ is the one who is our reward. So being helpful is not something that just happens to us. Uh, We don't just fall into being helpful. Like you wake up one day and go, wow, I've been so helpful. I didn't know I could be so helpful. It doesn't happen like that. Let me give you an illustration. It's like this elderly man who rescued a young girl who had fallen overboard on a cruise ship. 
uh, in the evening, everyone was gathered in the banquet hall of the ship and a party was being held and speeches were being made and one after the other from the captain to the crew, they would all stand up at the mic and just sing the praises of this elderly man who had rescued this one young woman who had fallen overboard. And earlier that morning, she was standing by the railing and she had fallen over and within seconds, this elderly man was in the water right next to him and uh, right next to her in the uh, the darkness of the early morning and he was asked to come to the microphone at the end of this party and just say a few heroic words of what he had done and he walked up and to the amazement of the crowd he said these words all I want to know is who pushed me in it doesn't just happen that you fall into being helpful you have to do it with determination foreknowledge and forethought you have to say I'm going to do this. I'm going to prepare myself for what lies ahead and be able to assist others in all of those categories. And of course, that's not an exhaustive list of who we're supposed to help, but God wants us to be able to be out there, unlike this man who probably lost his balance and fell in, and he thinks maybe somebody pushed him. There wasn't balance, quote, in his life, but God wants us to pursue this. And Here, Paul uh, continues with verse 11. There's a hint at uh, an illness Paul may have suffered. He says, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. And it is believed that he had an issue with his eyes where they were constantly oozing. Maybe a bacteria was in there. And there are some conditions that can be pretty unsightly where you're constantly wiping your eyes and there's ooze coming out of them. And it is believed that this is possibly what he had. He goes on in verse 12. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. So two things are going on here. One is... They don't want to be persecuted for their faith in Christ. They want to be pleasing men pleasers out there because there's the Jewish contingent, the ones who have come from Jerusalem who are previously Jews that said, you need to follow these feasts, observe these specific days, uh, the Sabbaths, and you need to be circumcised and believe in Christ. And Paul, we've already gone through it. He said, no, that's another gospel. That is not the gospel that we preach. And they're being motivated or guided by fear, fear that they might be persecuted for their faith. Now, have you ever been in a situation where you want to maybe tell somebody about Christ, but you're holding back because what might they think? Several examples in my life where I remember once being at a mall. I think it was Mission Valley Mall. And I see this guy walk out of what is now Target. It was something else back then. And he walks out, and I'm just sitting down for a moment. I think I had a drink. I got a Coke or something, and I was sitting there. And he heads right for me. I'm sitting down. I go, okay, this guy's coming right at me. And he was with a younger guy, and I think it was his son. And it was. It turned out to be his son. And he walks right up to me. He goes, how you doing? I said, I'm doing good. How are you? He goes, hey, I want to talk to you about Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ? And I said, as a matter of fact, I do. I do know Jesus Christ. He goes, really? Are you in fellowship somewhere? I said, I am in fellowship somewhere. Are you doing Bible study? 
I am doing Bible study. And he was just talking to me, and he did not even hesitate. He saw me sitting there. He saw me, and he headed straight for me. And I go, okay, here comes this guy. And he was not intimidated in any way to talk to me about Christ. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gone down? <clears throat> I've done this with uh, Drew before, a pastor of uh, missions pastor of Cabot Chapel Alpine. We go down to Mission Beach and do the good person test, and people are going by on the boardwalk, and you're standing out there, and there's a sign behind you that says the good person test. And people are walking by, and you just say, Hey, they go, What? Would you like to take the good person test? Good person. And you say, Do you think you're a good person? Yeah, I'm pretty good. And you start witnessing to them about Christ. And you have a captive audience and they're all going by. And then you have the gang members on the wall and you walk up to them and they're homies, you know, they're all up there and you give them the gospel. And sometimes they're not too receptive and you don't want to feel rejected. And so maybe you won't go and talk to them. But the Lord says, hey, go out there, talk to everybody. And if you live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be rejected. It's going to happen. But Christ says, do it anyway. Go talk to them. Now, you don't have to be belligerent going up to somebody. Hey, do you know you're going to hell if you don't have Christ? Let me tell you about it. And you don't want to do that. You want to make a connection with somebody who is there. And if you're sharing the gospel properly, the good news with the bad news, at some point, people are going to be offended. At another point, they may be humbled and say, what do I have to do to change? And I, I don't know, the, the numbers can be real sketchy. What is it, 1 to 10 maybe or 1 to 20? The person that actually bows right there and says, I, I want to accept Christ. It's not very often, but he just calls us to be a witness, just like he calls us to help. And is it going to take a carve-out part of your time? Yes, it is. Is it going to cause you to be sacrificial? Yes, it is. Is it going to cause you some anxiety to do that? Yes, it will. But Christ says, do it anyhow. It's for the kingdom. And, you know, we could get to heaven and we could go, why didn't I? I had the opportunity and I just let it pass by. I, I, I was fearful. Just like these people who wanted others to be circumcised because they're fearful of the persecution if they didn't encourage that. And Christ says, no, stand up. I mean, in this day and age, Christians are the enemy. Have I mentioned this before? You know who Brennan is or was or is? I think he's now part of the administration again, but he was the head of the CIA under Obama. He came out not too long ago and he said, Christians are the enemy. And he's part of the CIA. And so if those are the people in power and that's what they're saying, well, what lies ahead for us if they are currently in power? Well, go out and do it anyhow. Go out and share the gospel anyhow. They tell you not to meet in church. Did you see what the Supreme Court said? <laughs> you sing. Sing to the highest heights. You meet together and forget all these arbitrary rules. What is it? Uh, Gavin Newsom was knocked down five times because he wanted to continue. Now it's Gretchen Whitmore that needs to be dealt with. You know, nobody can do anything unless 70% of the population is vaccinated and it's tyrannical. And is the church going to say, okay, we're not going to meet together? No, we're going to be persecuted no matter what we do because the world hates Christ. And because they hate Christ, the world's going to hate all of you and me as well. It's not the time to put the proverbial tail between the legs and say, 
okay, we'll just succumb. No, we go forward. You know, the, the Lord calls us to be, quote unquote, according to the words of Paul, we are soldiers in the Lord's army. And if we metaphorically die in the process or physically die in the process, he calls us to be witnesses. He calls us to help this world, which is dying and wasting away. Then secondly, he says that not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised so that they may boast about their flesh or what they have accomplished, what they have done. You have the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, where we say, look what I have accomplished. And that's just the only pride that's coming up and we're supposed to crucify that as believers so those two reasons the idea that we can boast in our flesh or that we avoid persecution are not to be hindrances for us being helpful and being witnesses for christ verse 14 says may i never boast except in the cross of our lord jesus christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. In other words, Paul's saying, lay off me. I have enough persecution going on in my life. I've given you this instruction. And all of those 10 things that he delivered that were just very caustic to the Galatian churches, you know, some could have retaliated and said, well, who are you? You know, that type of thing. And he's going, just lay off. I've just given you this instruction. Just lay off. And he goes on to say, in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And so this, this finishes the book, but what about this balance, this idea? He starts out, he just rails on them, you foolish Galatians. I am so astonished he uses shame against them. He ridicules them. He brings curses on those who would teach a different gospel. Well, how does he balance this out? Now, if you've missed it through the whole book, he does something repeatedly, and he does it nine times. Now, the, the ridicule and the causticness was ten times, but nine times he comes back and he says something. If you go back to chapter one, and this is all the way through to chapter six, chapter one, verse 11, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not something that man made up. In Galatians chapter three, verse 15, he says, brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. In chapter 4, verse 12, he says, I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. Galatians 4, 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. 4, 31. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Brothers, in 5, verse 11. If I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? And 5.13, you, my brothers, were called to be free. And Galatians 6.1, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin. And Galatians 6.18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, or with your spirit, brothers. So he's calling them brothers the whole time. When maybe your kids are growing up or your grandkids I'm sure this has probably happened to you where you turn to them and they're being disobedient and you said, no. But you didn't say it like that. You said, no! You yelled at them and you, you run to your room and, you know, and they take off to the room because you yelled at them. You made them feel bad. 
Uh, even to this day and age, and I haven't done this in a long time, where I've turned maybe to a grandchild and sternly talked to them, or even my children. I just don't do that anymore. I go, whatever, you're an adult. You can do whatever you want. You know, I'm, I'm not going to bring any discipline on them. But after that, you, Patty would even encourage me, you know, go tell them how much you love them. You know, and you go inside and you hug, I still love you. <laughs> and they're like that. And you, you, you let them know you're mine, you're loved. That's what Paul's doing. On one hand, he's going, knock it off. On the other hand, he goes, but I really love you. You're my family. You're my brother. You're my brothers. And, and that's how he balances it here. I mean, if you remember, maybe some of you do, some of the churches, uh, 50s and 60s, it was all hellfire and damnation. And that was it. And you, I can remember going to a church even in the early 80s. I walked out of that place going, man, that was horrible. It made me feel so bad and people are weeping through the church and what sinners they were. And I'm thinking, well, it's true, but where's the encouragement, you know, on the other side? And then there was a movement of God loves everybody. Everybody's accepted. No, everybody is not accepted. And so we want that balance. Do what is right for the Lord is a just judge. On the other hand, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the balance we want to maintain. And that's what Paul does here. He leaves him with a blessing, but it's sown all the way through. He he paints this tapestry of the right and the wrong. Do the right that you know to do and avoid the wrong you know you're not supposed to do. So my encouragement to you this morning is we should learn from the book of Galatians. Do not put hedges around people and tell them that they have to walk in these things and perform certain tasks and observe certain days. And if you don't go to church on uh, some particular Sunday, it's not a mortal sin and you're not disqualified from heaven, especially if it's on Christmas or Easter. But should you go for the love of Christ? Yes, you should go. You should be encouraged by the things he tells us to do as far as being a servant of God. May you not shy away from the responsibility. May you grab the bull by the horns, so to speak. Is it going to cause you pain to serve Christ? Yes, it will cause you pain. But in the end, the best thing that you could possibly hear, as I've said so many times, Jesus will say, well done, now good and faithful servant and nothing will be able to top that. So at this time, what we're going to do is Kim is going to come up and she is going to uh, sing a song and before you come up I would like you uh, to just bow your heads privately and say Lord thank you for the insight and wisdom that your word provides you have not left us as orphans you have provided for us the instruction for life and forgive me when I fall short of that and if there's anything that I need to be doing that I have neglected please reveal that to me and help me to be motivated by the power of your spirit to do what I need to do and if there's any sins you say God please forgive me of my sins excuse me John first John 1 9 he will forgive you of those sins and everything will be restored and made right we are his brothers he calls us part of his family we are children of God and he wants to have that relationship with us and as we receive the communion we're going to hold on to that 
and I'm going to say a few words about the communion, but as we have done in the past, we will turn down the lights in the middle, and then as you take a minute to pray, just come up in the center and go back out to your aisle, and if you just start in the front and work that way, that would be great. So Kim will play this song as we start here. Mm-hmm. 